Good day and welcome to the Energy Policy Now podcast from the Climate Center for Energy Policy at the University of Pennsylvania. I'm Andy Stone. After years of high hopes but little development, the U.S. offshore wind industry finally seems poised for growth following a series of major offshore project announcements this year. In May and June, the states of Massachusetts, Rhode Island, and Connecticut selected a combined 1,400 megawatts of offshore wind projects for contract negotiation. When complete, the projects will generate enough electricity to power 200,000 homes and help the states meet their clean energy and climate goals. The projects are all the more noteworthy, given that there is currently just one small offshore wind farm operating in U.S. waters. On today's podcast, I'll be talking with the person charged with overseeing the federal government's involvement in developing the United States offshore renewable energy resources. Jim Bennett heads the Office of Renewable Energy Programs at the Bureau of Ocean Energy Management, which is part of the Department of the Interior. Bennett will offer his insights into what's driving recent investment in U.S. offshore wind energy, the challenges to offshore wind development, and the potential for the offshore industry to become a vital, economically competitive source of clean electricity. Also, here's Brandon Burke, an attorney and a graduate research assistant at the Climate Center. Brandon is completing his master's degree from the University of Pennsylvania, specializing in offshore wind and energy policy. Jim and Brandon, welcome to the podcast. Glad to be here. Thanks. So, Jim, I thought I'd uh, start this out with you by asking if you could give us an introduction to the Bureau of Ocean Energy Management and its role in managing offshore wind resources. Sure, Andy, and thanks again for the opportunity to speak with you all today. Um, uh, Again, my name is Jim Bennett. I'm the program manager for the Bureau of Ocean Energy Management. We are a relatively small bureau Uh, housed in the U.S. Department of the Interior. We're a federal agency, uh, but we have a lot of responsibility. We oversee the management of uh, offshore energy resources, which includes 1.7 billion acres of federal jurisdiction. That is more than the uh, National Park Service, the Bureau of Land Management, the U.S. Forest Service, and a few other agencies combined. Uh, of course, we have a unique uh, land base in that it doesn't begin until you're three miles offshore and it extends out to the uh, end of the exclusive economic zone about 200 miles offshore. Uh, and we are responsible for the uh, um, development, expeditious development of energy resources uh, and minerals, and we basically do it through uh, th- three programs, and that's our oil and gas program, which has been around for quite some time, uh, our renewable energy program, which we're going to talk about today, and our marine minerals program, which is primarily focused on sand and gravel and beach replenishment uh, issues. Uh, Our agency identifies areas uh, for development, particularly in this case for renewable energy development, wind energy areas, and conducts auctions. to allow developers to purchase the right to develop offshore after appropriate planning and approvals from our agency and other agencies involved. And uh, uh, on the basis of those plans, uh, if approved, they can move forward with the uh, construction and operation of wind energy farms offshore. 
So, so the U.S. offshore wind industry, looking at the history for just a moment, has, has struggled historically. Uh, there's only one U.S. offshore wind farm. That's the 30-megawatt Block Island wind farm off of Rhode Island. And the highest-profile effort to build an offshore wind project, which was the Cape Wind Project, uh, which was to be built off of Martha's Vineyard, was abandoned uh, following years of opposition to that project. So with that background, what historically have been the barriers to offshore wind power and what's changed so that we're finally starting to see projects uh, in the pipeline? Well, it's an excellent question. Uh, our um, uh, development of offshore wind in the United States, uh, I don't know that it's necessarily uh, struggled. It has been slow in developing. Uh, it has not developed as quickly as it has in other markets like in Europe where uh, the costs of energy are considerably higher and you have more centralized uh, government uh, uh, direction of activities. But the offshore wind industry has been following the the growth of onshore wind and has been steadily progressing uh, to the point where, as you say, we are very much uh, at a a, a watershed event, if you will, a major change in our uh, uh, activities in that uh, beyond, after the first offshore wind farm on Block Island, we anticipate several more wind farms in the next several years with uh, 12 leases, 12 active leases uh, up and down the East Coast extending from Cape Hatteras to Cape Cod. Uh, costs, because of the European experience and other global experiences, have come way, way down. Uh, and interest on the part of the states here in, here in the Northeast has has gone up considerably, and the end result is industry interest has peaked. We've had some very successful sales. We expect some very successful sales in the near future, uh, and and the result is that we will have steel in the water, uh, possibly as early as 2020. So you did mention that the European offshore wind industry is is pretty well established. I believe they have an excess of 12 gigawatts of offshore wind generation capacity at this point, again, versus the the 30 megawatts we have to this this point here in the United States. You mentioned there's been more centralized control and costs have been an issue there that have have, uh, helped the European industry go forward. Can you give a little bit more insight specifically in in, in what those drivers have been? Well, the... um the various governments over in Europe, in particular the United Kingdom, Germany, uh, Denmark, uh, the Netherlands, uh, have been very, very interested in offshore wind for some time. In fact, the uh, the first offshore wind farm was in the North Sea in 1991, uh, and those government uh, uh, activities have been pushing that as an objective, uh, as I mentioned earlier, partly because of energy costs, uh, and partly because of uh, stronger uh, uh, stronger goals with regard to environment uh, and the like. Uh, their experiences over the past 20 years have resulted in dramatic uh, reduction in uh, the costs associated with offshore wind, uh, and we've, we've seen some successes and we've seen some mistakes that have uh, uh, helped us on this end, and uh, we're using that of course, to our advantage, and the European uh, interests are uh, are very much focused on the developing market in the U.S. You know, looking at what makes offshore wind so so attractive in general. I mean, one of the, one of the things that kind of stands out is that 
offshore wind farms would be close to coastal cities where there were a constant, you know, high concentration of uh, the American citizenry is, is located. But can you talk a little bit more about what, what the advantages of offshore wind are that, that, again, make it so attractive? Well, the main advantage is that it's becoming economically feasible, and that's because the uh, environment uh, for successful offshore wind uh, it really has three basic components, and that's uh, the, uh, uh, the buildable environment offshore uh, which is a long, shallow, sloping shelf, which we do have on the East Coast. Uh, we have, uh, we also have the, the the second component, which is markets, uh, and that's uh, world-class markets ex- for the Northeast, the megalopolis from uh, Richmond or Washington up as far as Boston, uh, uh, and and of course the uh, uh, the third piece. Of, of a successful market is, uh, as I mentioned, in addition to buildable environment and, uh, uh, and the marketplace, is the proper technology which is in place now for the Northeast uh, for the environment that we have. Uh, and those forces are coming together in a way uh, that uh, industry is taking notice and investors are taking notice. As you mentioned, these offshore wind areas are between three miles and 200 miles offshore in, in federal waters. Yet the states are really the ones that are driving this from, I guess, the economic or policy standpoint. Can you, can you talk about that role of the states in incentivizing and how the federal and the state governments are working together? Sure. Um, the... Um, uh the success of the offshore wind industry is really dependent on, on exactly that, the federal and the state governments working together. Because although we have the leasing authority for offshore areas, uh, for developers to be in a position to actually invest and build, uh, they have to have uh, uh, agreements for the, for the purchase of the power that they generate. Uh, and that really rests with the states. And in order for uh, the success of plans to move forward, successful plans to move forward, you have to have states that are uh, very interested in making it move forward and are very interested in ensuring that they have uh, the uh, renewable energy resource coming into their grid onshore. Uh, and we work very closely with the states through uh, state renewable task forces, renewable energy task forces, uh, and our, our, our purpose is to make sure that the uh, uh, information and communication occurs between the federal government and the state interests uh, in such a way that uh, both environmental concerns uh, as, as well as the timing of uh, the development of offshore resources occurs in a very, uh, uh, a very constructive way. Um, the states, of course, that are most interested are the states that you'll see where the offshore leases are, and that includes Massachusetts, Rhode Island, uh, even Connecticut, New York, New Jersey, and all the way down uh, to North Carolina. Those um, lease areas are assigned to certain states, but my understanding is that uh, it's not only uh, resources for a given state that can that can be established in those areas. Can you can you explain a little bit how those um, how sure. those lease areas are divvied up? Sure. Uh, 
As I mentioned, the area three, from three miles out to 200 miles is under federal jurisdiction. Uh, and although we, we, we say they're assigned to certain states, they, they really are not. They are uh, uh, the, 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 the electricity that can be generated from wind farms in those areas uh, can be sold to whoever uh, is the uh, most interested party. Uh, and uh, a couple of examples of that, we have a project on a lease off of Rhode Island that we have been referring to as a Rhode Island lease, but uh, it's called the South Fork Project, and they just competitively won a uh, uh, contract with the state of New York to deliver power uh, to Montauk, to Long Island, uh, and the same is true of other other areas, although they generally will be uh, servicing uh, nearby areas. They're not restricted uh, to any adjacent state, and uh, they can provide wherever it's it's appropriate and, and where needs can be met. What level of subsidization is needed to make these projects competitive right now? Well, um, I can't speak to exactly what level of subsidization is needed, uh, but the movement has been away from that. Uh, the first tender over in Europe uh, uh, in, in just recent months uh, was was uh, completed where there wasn't there is no subsidization. Uh, we provide no subsidy for uh, uh, offshore uh, operators in federal waters. Uh, the states are providing incentives, and and what is happening is that the industry is changing in a way that we're moving to a point where uh, eventually there will be no subsidies needed to make uh, to make successful wind farms. Uh, provide electricity to to coastal areas. Um, so um, there are a couple of like like the, uh, um, the 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 tax incentives are there, uh, but in general uh, we're not operating on the basis of subsidies. And I think over the long term we're we're looking to be moving away from subsidies. Though the states are incentivizing those uh, new projects or look to do that, can you can you tell us a little bit about the types of incentives that the states are looking at offering the developers? Well, the main one, the main incentive that we're dealing with uh, is not is not what you would call a direct subsidy, but uh, the fact that they are p- putting power purchase agree- agreements together or. Uh, um, uh, renewable energy credits together, so that the developers know that they have a buyer for their 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 electricity, uh, and that is a very strong incentive. In fact, it might be a, uh, critical in order for a successful project to uh, to move forward. Uh, but that's the main thing that the states are doing in conjunction with the federal government to be moving the process forward. Yeah, this is Brandon. Um, I just wanted to add to what Jim said. In addition to the power purchase agreements, another thing that uh, type of subsidy that's being considered by the states is an OREC or an offshore renewable energy credit or certificate. And that is the framework that's being um, applied in both New Jersey and Maryland. So, so uh, Brandon, I actually wanted to ask you about this. The states are interested, obviously, in, in, in sources of, of, of clean electricity uh, that would come from the offshore wind farms. But they're also interested in some of the broader economic benefits of offshore wind. And, and you've been following this, I know, particularly in New Jersey. What opportunities are these states looking for? What have you seen in, in New Jersey? Well, Andy, it's important to keep in mind that offshore wind is not only a new energy industry for the United States. It's also a new American maritime industry. 
And from a historical perspective, the United States was a predominantly coastal nation, even as far back as the colonial era. And fishing, shipping, and other marine commercial activities were uh, instrumental drivers to economic prosperity in this country. But a variety of factors, which include overfishing, the decline of the whaling industry, overseas uh, relocation of heavy industry, including shipbuilding uh, after World War II, as well as economic downturns, uh, downturns have hit coastal communities particularly hard. Um, and for that reason, the establishment of a robust American offshore wind industry presents a unique opportunity to revitalize these waterfront communities and port infrastructure, and most importantly, to build a new domestic supply chain from the ground up. Uh, and in fact, New Jersey's Offshore Wind Economic Development Act, which is commonly referred to as OIDA, specifically requires offshore wind projects that are seeking those New Jersey subsidies to demonstrate a net, a net economic benefit to New Jersey. Uh, Maryland has similar legislation, and in a recent uh, July 12, 2018 order from the New York Public Service Commission, uh, they expressed similar goals for the state of New York. Um, and this focus on in-state economic benefits has, to an extent, created competition between states along the eastern seaboard in terms of where this new supply chain will be anchored. Um, now, at the same time, this desire of states to maximize their individual economic benefits from offshore wind projects could, to an extent, conflict with some initiatives that are fostering or seeking to foster regional cooperation on offshore wind projects. But, you know, it, it's a bit early to make predictions at this point, so it's something that we're monitoring. Got it. So, Brandon, another question for you. You've uh, attended some of these stakeholder meetings in New Jersey looking at these offshore potential offshore projects. Who are the key stakeholders? What are their positions? And have you seen opposition? Yeah, Andy, uh, we have seen some opposition to American offshore wind projects, uh, and one of the challenges that was leveled at the Cape Wind Project uh, in Nantucket Sound that you mentioned before was um, viewshed impacts, and and that's sort of a fancy way of saying that the offshore wind turbines can be seen from shore. Now, that's certainly a valid concern, and 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 many states, including uh, uh, Maryland specifically, are concerned that the visibility of offshore wind turbines from shore could adversely affect their uh, tourism revenues. Um, personally, I don't find offshore wind turbines to be objectionable, but of course, I can't speak for everyone. Um, now, the commercial fishing industry is another stakeholder group that has uh, expressed concerns about offshore wind development. And as you mentioned, I, I recently attended, uh, attended some fisheries stakeholder outreach meetings in New Jersey, um, and, and, and comments from fishermen were certainly eye-opening. Um, one thing to remember here is that, you know, while offshore wind farms might not have uh, quote-unquote neighbors, the ocean is not an empty place. Um, many, many people make their entire living from the ocean, and uh, they will be, there will be some impacts um, to a degree from these projects on those people, and, and it is important to keep their uh, considerations in mind. So, Jim, who develops and pays for the transmission to bring wind power ashore? Uh, the way the uh, leasing process is set up, set up right now, the uh, lessees offshore all are given uh, some kind of right to get their, their product to shore through transmission lines. It is on the lessees to develop those transmission lines and the landfalls and the connection to the existing grid, uh, grid onshore. Uh, there are questions about whether or not 
uh, things can be done more efficiently through uh, a backbone of cabling that uh, offshore uh, wind farms can connect to and bring the, sh- bring the electricity to shore more efficiently. Uh, but uh, in any case, it is uh, anticipated that the private sector will bear those costs as part of the overall development of their projects. One of the issues that has also been a challenge, uh, as I understand it, is is the logistical challenges to offshore wind construction. Um, Brandon, can you tell us about what you've seen? These are some unique circumstances. I'd love to hear some some uh, color from you on that. Well, I think what you're referring to there, Andy, is the Jones Act, and that's what's called a cabotage law. And as a general matter, uh, cabotage laws restrict foreign access to domestic trade. And the United States is not the only country that has these cabotage, cabotage laws. Um the Jones Act requires vessels carrying merchandise between U.S. ports to be, number one, owned by U.S. companies that are controlled by U.S. citizens, number two, at least 75% crewed by U.S. citizens, number three, built or rebuilt in the United States, and finally, number four, registered in the United States. Now, under the Jones Act, once an offshore wind turbine foundation is permanently or temporarily affixed to the seabed, it's considered the equivalent of a U.S. port. Um, and the challenges is that what, uh, the main challenge is that the U.S. does not currently possess any Jones Act compliant jackup vessels. Now, a jackup vessel is essentially a ship with legs. Once the vessel has reached the turbine installation site, it lowers these legs down into the sea bottom, and the hull of the vessel actually lifts completely out of the water, and this provides a stable platform for construction activities. Um, because of the lack of Jones Act compliant vessels, the Block Island Wind Farm, which is the only currently operational offshore wind farm in the United States, had to develop an interesting workaround. They had a jackup vessel called the Brave Turn sail directly from Europe across the Atlantic to the Block Island installation site off of Rhode Island. And that vessel did not make any stop at any U.S. port. So once the Brave Turn was at the installation site, turbine components were ferried by barge from land out to the installation site. And the Brave Turn then lifted the turbine components off the barges and installed them. And consistent with a Customs and Border Patrol ruling, um, this does not violate the Jones Act. However, although it is ostensibly a viable workaround, it has been estimated that this type of uh, mechanism can increase the cost of an offshore wind project by as much as 20 to $40 million. So to a certain extent, the, the construction of domestic Jones Act compliant jackup vessels is sort of one of the is low-hanging fruit that allows us to decrease the overall cost of offshore wind projects um, in the short run. Got it. Jim, a final question for you. Do you think that the U.S. industry will begin to look like that in Europe, and if so, when? Um, I do think that it's, it, all indications are that it's, it's, it's going to grow uh, in a very, very substantial way over the, next, uh, over the next few years. The leases, the 12 leases that we have, the active leases on the East Coast, are likely to be supplemented by additional leases over the next uh, few years. And uh, it takes a long time for these projects to be built. But the good news is that we're coming to the end of uh, one of those long periods where we've been leasing for the last uh, eight to ten years, and uh, within a year or two uh, at this point, we anticipate having steel in the water, and we could have as many as a dozen projects built over the course of the, uh, uh, of, of, of the next decade uh, uh, approaching 
uh, the, the 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 size and extent of, uh, of activities over in Europe, uh, and we're very optimistic that that, that the uh, wind industry is is probably one of the strongest uh, potential uh, uh, areas for for growth, both economically and in terms of uh, energy and and the environment uh, for the years to come. Jim and Brandon, thanks for talking. Sure thing. Thanks for having us on. Thanks, Andy. Today's guests have been Jim Bennett, Chief of the Office of Renewable Energy Programs at the Bureau of Ocean Energy Management, and Brandon Burke, an attorney, offshore wind researcher, and soon-to-be master's graduate from the University of Pennsylvania. Thanks for tuning in to Energy Policy Now. For more energy policy insights, check out the Climate Center's website for original research, events, and our archive of over 40 podcast episodes to date. Our web address is climateenergy.upenn.edu. And a quick note, this episode is the last for Season 2 of Energy Policy Now. We'll be taking a short break, and we'll be back in September with a new season. Until then, have a great summer. 